welcome back to BSA Today. We are continuing the conversation with Odian Welch from the Africa Center and Simone Saunders from Cognitive Corner about mental health issues within the Black community. I have another question that pertains to culture for you, Ms. Welch. How does being in touch or being in lack of touch with cultural supports affect one's mental health? Ooh, that's a good one. I feel like I kind of just talked about it a little bit, but your identity has so much to do with your mental health, like your self-esteem, your ability to be proud of who you are, regardless of what that is and how you decide to be it. And so if you don't have a safe space to express yourself, it can be really detrimental. I actually, um, there's a new restaurant that opened called D-Spot in Edmonton, um, and it only serves dessert. And so I went there and it's crepes and everything, but even before you can get to the washrooms, you walk by a prayer room. Um, and it's because they have predominantly Muslim staff. And this restaurant set up a way for staff to still have their identity without feeling excluded. It was like, here is this inclusion. And so they don't have to hide it. They can be whatever they want. And it's saying it supports it. And so that is so important to see that because I'm not Muslim, but I messaged all my Muslim friends like, hey, this restaurant's giving a safe space. Go check it out. And that's huge. And so for me... Uh, my family, my black, the black side of my background is Caribbean. And I love Kara West and Carnival and all those bright, colorful things. And there was a period of time where, because of lots of things, I wasn't sure how I fit in to that realm. And so I had to learn how to identify how to kind of embrace my Caribbean side while fitting in in our world. And fortunately, over the last, I'm going to say 10 years, we've done a great job of saying like, it's okay to have this identity and this bright, vibrant identity. But until we do it for all cultures, it's people are going to struggle to know where they fit in. And then when you throw in being mixed race, it's how do you, like, how do I love both cultures? And I technically have three cultures in me. So it's like, how do I love them all and show love for them all without, you know, being favoritized or dealing with colorism or any of those things? And so I like to think my identity crisis was a lot bigger <laughs> than some people. But yeah, knowing culturally who you are is so important beyond your skin and race tone and also knowing the positives. Unfortunately, something that I see happen all too often in Black History Month is we talk about the struggle and we don't talk about the successes and the beauty and the learning opportunities within the cultures. And so if somebody is really trying to explore whatever Black identity they land in and all they're hearing about is, you know, the slave ships, it's like, why do you want to be proud of something like that? And so that is something where, again, there's an onus on everybody to showcase the strengths that lie within it. So when I see you head nodding, so I want to throw it right back to you right now. Yeah, I mean, the thing that came up for me was just um, when you were talking about D-Spot, which very good, by the way, they have one in Calgary, but um, was just around culturally responsive supports, right? So the difference as a racialized person or person of color, um, seeing a therapist who is maybe white, who doesn't have that background or ability to do that reflection with you and seeing a therapist that's maybe a person of color that does have that ability to do that with you is night and day, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of times mental health for racialized people is a lot of times rooted in struggles around racial identity as well, right? Especially living in a predominantly white province. Mm -hmm. So you really have to think about like, okay, the 
resources that I'm accessing? Does this allow me to celebrate who I am? Does this allow me to explore who I am? Both right. sides of that. Because and I without think, judgment. Yes, especially without judgment, because I think that it's important to be able to celebrate your identity. But if you have struggles with it, do you have a safe place to explore those struggles? Mm -hmm. Like, as you say that, I think I remember because for me to find a counselor that worked for me the first time, it took me eight therapists. And it was like, I struggled to find someone where I didn't feel this wall was up. And one thing too, is I think, especially in not even just in black groups, but in certain cultural groups, there's this expectation that if you're not like an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor, or you don't go and get married and have 100 babies, that you failed as a woman. And so if you don't have a safe space to express that without judgment, like I remember one white therapist I had, nothing against white therapists, but just wasn't the right fit at the time, um, was like, well, your parents shouldn't have those expectations on you. Well, even if they did, it's the cultural expectation. So how are you going to help me find the identity that works for me within these norms? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and a lot of these things are much deeper than just set boundaries with your family, because maybe it's not appropriate culturally to set boundaries with your family. Right. If you live in a five generation household and your grandma's in the basement, how are you really setting boundaries when there's so much pressure on you as a youth, especially to say, you know what, I want to do art or I, I want to be a dancer. Right. How do you navigate that and how do you have a safe space? And that's something that we won't be able to discuss today. But why that journey when you have a cultural identity isn't always easy to get good mental health. It is a journey. Um, I have a follow up question for that. Do you believe that in like the last few years, that journey for people going through like cultural identity crises has like been easier or like has it been harder in any way? Like I want to hear both your opinions on this. I'm going to let Simone take that one first. Yeah, I think I have mixed opinions on this. So I think that in some ways it's become easier and in some ways it's become harder. So specifically talking about like the Black community, for example, I think that a lot of features that are typically native to Black people, I think that um, those are, are popular now. So I think that in that respect, it's become easier to accept some of the features about yourself that are you know, just there because of who you are racially and culturally. Um, but also, I think that it's become harder in some ways, because as people are really recognizing, okay, like, I can kind of embrace my culture, really, a lot of these questions are coming, where um, maybe there's the internalized racism, the colorism, the texturism, all of these isms that are so much more prominent than they were before. And it's not to say they didn't exist before. They were just muted because the beauty standard, for example, maybe like 10 years ago was straight hair. Now people are embracing curly hair, but there's the whole other layer of texturism now. Right. And so I think that in some ways, um, just specifically talking about beauty standards, it's become easier for people to accept themselves, but also much harder. I love that. As you talk about it, when I think about it, when, like when I was in junior high and high school, I had a big derriere for a tiny body. And I was fat and made fun of and so much ridicule because of it. And now it's like everybody wants a big butt. There's a lineup at the gym for squat machines. And so then as you're older, you're kind of like, well, man, I missed out. <laughs> but in some ways it is easier because a conversation is happening. And there are resources. Like, obviously, I love the clinic um, that I helped create. And Simone is one of the therapists at the clinic as well. And so there are resources and also too, those resources have such limited funding. So there's weights. So yes, now there's culturally relevant resources, but are they actually attainable if someone's waiting six weeks or eight weeks and then by then they don't wanna deal with it anymore? 
And to go back to the beauty standards, there's as much as it's becoming acceptable, it's becoming acceptable within a box. So there's still an expectation that, especially when it comes to women and even men, that it's okay for them to embrace their cultural roots if they do it within the ways that are now acceptable. So let's say cornrows, for example. Cornrows are now way more acceptable than they were even five years ago for someone's cultural identity. And that can be huge, just dealing with your hair. I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast knows the combing struggle in the shower with the conditioner for four hours of your life. But it's under the expectation that it's with a shaved head and that they are always clean and this and that. And so it's become acceptable, but it's become acceptable at very high standards because I know for a lot of black males, it means they're now getting their hair cornrowed once a week to maintain this standard of being acceptable within their black hair. So in some ways it's harder and in some ways it's easier. I feel like I didn't explain it good enough, but I'm hoping I did. No, that was a very good explanation. Um, With the beauty standard stuff that is mainly being like shown through social media and stuff, how do you both like believe that social media helps people cope with mental health or do you like not believe that it doesn't help people cope? I, again, have mixed opinions on this. So I think everything in moderation. So I do think that mental health is, uh, or social media in relation to mental health has been really good because I think it's been a huge source of psychoeducation where you wouldn't get that otherwise because typically um, if we're talking maybe like even five years ago, the people who had mental health knowledge were mental health professionals. And that's pretty much it. Right. So now there's so much more access to psychoeducation. So people have a better understanding of kind of what's going on for them or possibly what's going on for them or what's going on for their loved ones and ability to seek support as a result of that. But I also think that social media at times can be harmful if you spent a spend too much time on it. Um, and B, don't have uh, the right resources, right? So a lot of times if you, like, let's say, for example, you spend your whole day, every day on mental health TikTok, then a lot of times you can kind of get into that cycle of like, okay, do I have ADHD? Am I bipolar? Do I have this? Do I have that? Do I have that? And then that can cause an immense amount of stress. So I think it's really about having boundaries with that. So absorbing some of this um, content, but really understanding like, A, not all content is meant for each person. So you kind of have to take what applies to you and leave what doesn't. And how do I create boundaries around that in terms of the time spent? Because on one hand, we don't want people to completely neglect their mental health, of course. But on the other hand, we don't want people to be so um, zeroed in on it that it causes even more mental health struggles. When it comes to social media, it's the same. It's so good in the fact that you can find resources, but knowing which ones are good and which ones are bad. And also, the as much as there's education, sometimes there's a lack of education. So something I find really common is in regards to depression, it'll be like, are you feeling sad? But it won't say that usually you need to feel sad for a certain period of time or that there's things that it's okay to feel sad about. For example, if you're grieving the loss of someone or something, a couple weeks is okay to be sad about that. It doesn't mean you're depressed. It means you're processing your emotion. But when you go on social media, it'll make it seem like, oh, you were sad for two days after your dog passed away. Well, now you're depressed and now we go through the cycle. And so as much as there's information, there's, I don't want to call it misinformation because a lot of it is very accurate, but 
kind of lack of the backstory. And it's not usually the content creator's fault. They have a limited time span to do it. And so when it comes to social media, I think it's a great place to kind of dip your toe but it shouldn't be the final answer. And whether that comes to mental health or beauty tech, when it comes to beauty, to be honest, I don't think social media helps anybody. Uh, there is way too many filters. And this is an example I'll use and you can take it out if you want, but I, whenever possible, I try not to filter my photos. And I take like by social media standards, the ugliest photos. I have this habit of making these weird faces. I laugh really big. Like I turn my head, it's a thing. And so there was a period of time where my family and friends were encouraging me to put filters on. They're like, oh, you don't look good in that photo. Uh, you could look so much better. And I can be um, very, what's the word? I'm, I guess stubborn, we'll call it. And so my response was always, well, if I get kidnapped, we'll find me on the milk carton because I don't have bunny ears or whatever was trending at the time. But because of social media's encouragement of those filters, we now think that someone being naturally themselves isn't a beautiful picture. When 20 years ago, the most beautiful pictures were those photos that were taken and no one even knew someone was looking, right? You look at those photos and you're like, oh, look at them playing. And now our photos have to be perfectly staged because of it. So when it goes to finding out some information, I'm 100%. When it comes to our identity, I don't love it. Not at all. Although I will say TikTok does a slight better job than anybody else in the sense that people share in cultural identities. I think right now in relation to Indigenous heritage, there's a really good movement happening showing the positive of the cultures and explaining why certain things are certain ways. And I would like to see more of that from other communities. However, that's kind of where we're at with social media. So yeah, love-hate relationship. <laughs> I would like to piggyback on um, a of couple of things you said, Odian. Um, in terms of TikTok, I do agree that TikTok does slightly better than Insta. Well, I would say a lot better than Instagram um, in terms of showcasing people because I think what has been refreshing also to see on TikTok is people just talking with like two-day makeup, people talking in their bonnets, people whatever, right? And so I think that that space in terms of um, standards of beauty allows more, I guess, room to breathe around just showing up as your natural self. Um, but I also wanted to touch on kind of like that in misinformation piece that you talked about as well, Odin. And I think it's really important too when you're consuming content to remember that everybody that puts out mental health content isn't necessarily a mental health professional. And so it's important to also be mindful of that because you could be maybe consuming content from perhaps, you know, maybe a mental health coach and perhaps they don't necessarily have the in-depth knowledge that you might need in order to make some of these decisions. Um, so I would always, I always say be wary of extremes. So like, you will get rid of your anxiety by doing X. You will get rid of your depression by doing X. You will get rid of your trauma by doing X. Because a lot of these things, anxiety is something that fluctuates throughout life, right? Depression is something that can fluctuate throughout life. Um, and so there's not necessarily a way to get rid of a lot of these things. It's about coping with them and reducing it so that your quality of life isn't as impacted. Mm -hmm. I want to piggyback on that. That, I would say, is one of the saddest things about social media and advertising is that they've made mental health seem like it's a band-aid fix and it's not i joke with people that my mental health is my part-time job 
And I am always filling my toolbox because something that might have worked to support my anxiety and depression five years ago might not work under new circumstances. And so it's a never ending job. And I guess to use an example, my panic attacks, I, I used to have panic attacks so bad I would be in the hospital, like attached to equipment and it wasn't fun. And it took a lot of work to find out the triggers, how to relax myself, how to calm myself, how to set myself up in a way that anxiety wasn't crippling. And for years, I've had my anxiety completely under control. And through this pandemic, there was a lot of triggers that I couldn't control and were completely new to me. And so I was like, wait, I'm recognizing some of these symptoms. This is about to be a panic attack. And I had to look at past resources that I've used before and look into new resources to set myself up in a way that I could still function. So to say that you know, you're going to talk to someone once and you're going to feel better. Not true at all. Counseling, in my opinion, is a lifelong thing. You can maybe ebb and flow it, but it's a lifelong thing. If you're on a prescription, I am not a medical doctor, and that is something you need to deal with with your doctors. But you don't just stop taking your prescription or you don't just start taking a random prescription because you saw the commercial for Zoloft and the doll looks funny. It's really like as the good and the bad that's come out of it, we have to stop acting like it's a band-aid because like depression, anxiety are my specialties, but it takes however many years to create them. My depression, like, yes, there is, um, someone, what's the word when it happens just because of a certain circumstance? Um, like situational. Yeah. So there's situational depression. So for example, your dog passing away, that's a situational depression, but like depression and lifetime from depression and anxiety from a lifetime of trauma doesn't go away right away. And I always like to refer to it like the gym. Like if you've been overweight for your whole life, let's say you're 18 years old and you've always been, you know, slightly chubby, uh, really struggled with your physical health. Then if you go and lose that weight in 18 days on some fad diet in six months, that weight has come back on. And usually with more. And the same thing happens with your mental health. If for 18 years this has been building up, it's probably going to take you 18 months to get that fully under control. But when you do, the rest of your life's going to be grand. But if you go and try and find a one-time smoothie drink to make yourself feel good, well, when you start feeling bad again, you're probably going to spiral and feel guilty that you somehow didn't work on this marketed campaign promise. So yeah, good and bad. That's my soapbox. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it sounds like what you guys are kind of both like coming to in like a general idea on your comments is like finding balance. And I would say with like activism and confrontation, how do you strive for balance to protect your own mental health in those situations where you want to speak out about certain things, but you still need to maintain good mental health. So how do you kind of find the balance between those? Yeah, I think that it's really about being in touch with yourself and your own emotional state. Because I think that if there's, for example, like you had said, if there's things that I want to speak out about, I have to really understand if I have the emotional capacity to have that conversation. And if I don't, then that's okay. I don't need to feel guilty or feel shame for not having those conversations. I think it's just about really recognizing and meeting yourself where you're at. 
So if you feel like you can or you want to do that advocacy and you have the emotional space to do it, then absolutely go for it. But I think that something else that I talk a lot about in um, my own sessions is that this need for advocacy, you don't have to break your own back and your spirit in order to do so. So yes, advocacy is important, but it's also important to maintain your own health. Yeah, it's because, you know, like we always use the example of putting the airplane mask on first, but it's a balance. And sometimes advocacy for anything isn't in the moment when everybody else is doing it. It's the unseen moments. So I always like examples, as you guys can tell. Last week was Mental Health Week and I was completely MIA. And so some people reached out like, you should be promoting this or you should be doing this. Actually, Mental Health Week is the week that I step back and I take care of my own self and let everybody else who wants to advocate take this light. And same with Black History Month. I do tons of advocating for Blackness, I guess I'm going to say, um, throughout the year. So sometimes during Black History Month, I'll step back and I'll allow other people to flourish and I'll allow myself to take the time to just enjoy the situation because we can get so passionate about something, but if we're not running at our best capacity, we're no good to anybody. And we're especially no good to the cause that we're trying to stand up for. So as much as society can pressure us that once you're advocating for something, you always have to advocate for something, it's not true at all. Once you advocate for something, do what's in your realm. If you're feeling burnt out, if you're catching yourself making silly mistakes, if you're forgetting things, take a step back for a few days. It's okay. Unfortunately, the problem's still probably going to be there even after you recoup yourself. So allow it to happen. And something for individuals who work in mental health, and Simone will tell you that I am sometimes the worst at doing this, but it's knowing that you can't help everybody. And so I'll be like, oh, I want to get this done and I'm staying late and I'm doing this. And she'll be like, hey, 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 where's your work-life balance? And so as important as it is us for, for us to know to take care of ourselves, it's important for our circle to know they can tell us to take care of ourselves and to remind us that it's okay. Because as much as it's on you, and we go back to the hyper-independence earlier, it's about the community you build around yourself. And that's something that is so beautiful within cultural communities is the community that exists and that ability to rise together. We just have to allow it to happen and encourage it to happen. I agree. Mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, So we're down to like our final few questions. This one is for you both. What are some mental health resources for marginalized youth in Alberta? Africa Center. I was on mute, but I laughed out loud at that. Yes, as somebody at the Africa Center, I can say it. And especially our counseling clinic, because the counseling clinic is accessible online currently, in person eventually, but we removed a lot of barriers that exist in mental health for it. So we have evening and weekends appointments. There's no cost for those who are going through citizen issues and might worry that, you know, seeking mental health resources could affect that, even though it doesn't. That's a horrible stigma. Um, We don't ask those questions. And through the Alberta Black Therapist Network that we utilize and Simone, uh, we can direct people to other resources that might exist. Like there's um, actually a, it's based out of Ontario and there's one based out of New York, which is a 24 hour hotline. So people can call in and again, same thing, Black therapists. Sometimes there's a wait time. There is uh, CASH, the Center of Caribbean Council and African Heritage. 
They offer a variety of resources. And um, sometimes the resources don't need to be Black specific. They just need to be youth specific or your age group. Or if you're part of the LGQ2B plus community, there is Isthmus out of the U of A and they have a branch out of the University of Calgary. There's the Pride Center in Calgary and Edmonton, and they have very specific resources, but they exist. Um, and I think that's an, and that will be a whole other discussion for another day. But Black youth who identify under the queer umbrella might need sometimes need very specific resources or just need a safe space to talk. And so reaching out, a lot of those organizations have BIMPOC-based mental health resources or identity resources. And I talk about self-esteem and sometimes it's just take a self-esteem course. The Family Center, there's one in Calgary and in Edmonton. Um, they offer a self-esteem and assertion course. And there's something I took years ago. And as a Black female, I will say it was one of the best things that I did because I could yell and scream and head bob at a guy if needed, but I couldn't do it in any other area of my life until I took that course. And so it's courses like that or um, Africa Central offers arts-based resources. If art is a great way um, or poetry or any of those things to work on your mental health. So reaching out to those organizations like the Alberta Art Gallery, like the Edmonton Poetry Society, they can help find resources to just do that everyday preventative stuff. Simone, did I, I feel like I missed somebody. Did I miss a resource? I don't think so. But I, what I will say, though, is that I, I do think that there needs to be more um, Black-specific resources. And so I hope that, that is something that can kind of come up in the future. But I agree with kind of everything that Odian said, that if you can't necessarily find like a Black resource for something specific, find it elsewhere. And then, you know, the community, like Odian had talked about, the community you build around yourself, make sure that's at least nurturing that cultural identity piece if you're not able to get it in different organizations. But the primary care network, there's one in Fort McMurray, Edmonton, and Alberta. They obviously, sometimes you have to check the pandemic restrictions, but they have everything from mindfulness courses to meditation courses to eating courses to mental health conversations to grocery shopping tours and knowing what groceries are good for you. So I would really recommend them as well. And most of their services are free or like five bucks. Thank you. Um, our next question is, how can friends and allies of Black or POC struggling with mental health support them? Um, I think that allowing a safe space, first and foremost, uh, to talk about these things. So if you are, you know, a friend or an ally of someone who is a racialized person, then don't assume what they're going through, but allow them to have a safe space to talk about whatever it might be. Um, and then also educating yourself about what's going on um, in terms of like the Black community, in terms of racism, in terms of the impacts of a lot of these things, because I think that that contributes to being able to provide a safe space is they shouldn't have to educate you about what's going on because then that kind of defeats the purpose of even uh, venting in the first place. So educate yourself and provide that safe space so that you can talk to your friend um, or your loved one or whoever that might be about their mental health and encourage them to seek out support if that's something that you both are noticing that they might need. I love that. And I always, um, to first piggyback on like, being an ally means they don't have to reshare their story. It's okay to ask questions if you've tried to find the answers. So Google is a hit and miss place for answers, but let's say someone's talking about 
I'm gonna use a refugee experience as an extreme example. Instead of asking them questions, like what was it like and asking them to relive that trauma, go do some research. And then if there was something you really wanted to know or you felt you didn't understand, ask them about that. Um, I, my granddad, who I say is my best friend, really harps on me for two ears and one mouth. So to be the best ally possible is to listen and to listen to understand, not listen to respond. And then when you do respond, respond with, how can I support you? Because regardless of whatever group we're trying to be an ally towards, we're so quick to wanting to put our solutions or what worked for us instead of asking them what they may need. And often someone might not know what they need for support, but knowing they could potentially come to you is beyond powerful. I totally agree, especially with the how can I support question. I feel like that's something that's really big and it's definitely needed for friends and allies. Another question that we have is, what are some resources you can use if you have no therapist but still want to work to better your mental health? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say psychoeducation first. Um, so you can access that through social media. There is different apps like the Dive Through App, which is based in Edmonton. Um, again, just a disclaimer with the social media pieces, you know, take what you what is applicable to you, leave what isn't applicable. Um and getting involved in events that might be free. So with the Africa Center, they offer a bunch of events where, you know, at the beginning of some events, there's talk about mental health. There's like some psychoeducational pieces there. Um, so you don't necessarily have to have access to therapy in order to improve your mental health sometimes. Definitely, it can be helpful, especially if you're noticing that um, your mental health is impacting you on a day-to-day -day basis. But I would say, yeah, psychoeducation, whether that be in the form of different apps or um, social media or self-help books, and then um, accessing free resources that are around you. I love the self-help books. They can go so far and we can forget how powerful they can be and grabbing those from the library or an audible book. Um, I think too, a lot of people might not have counselors. Like we have the stigma, but we associate such a high cost with them. And there are a lot of free resources. Some of them are like time specific or date specific. But if you really go looking, you can find endless opportunities, whether it's via phone or virtual now. Thing. That's one thing that came out of the pandemic is the option for virtual appointments um, or in person. And also sometimes supporting our mental health isn't just the, the psychoanalysis. It's our everyday health. So, you know, if running makes you feel good, join a running club. Um, that can do wonders. You know, being outside is good for your mental health. Physical activity is good for your mental health. I like food. Joining a cooking class and building a support community that way. Uh, there is, I'm trying to think, there's so many great things. Again, art classes. The I'm a huge fan of the art. Don't look at my drawings, but huge fan of it. And the Alberta Art Gallery um, offers free workshops and we'll provide the resources. And that's a good way for your mental health to explore it. So same with um, in the summer, we're the festival city. Volunteering is great for your mental health. It is, we don't talk about how good volunteering is. And volunteering is something you're interested in. I love blues music. So I volunteer with Edmonton Blues Fest. And the good endorphin feelings that I get from that while having the time of my life and hanging out with artists and being the youngest person there, because most people who listen to blues are 60, <laughs> is um, so good. So 
don't think that to have positive mental health is you have to talk to a counselor. It's like one of my favorite things, but it's those everyday little things that you do. Even if it's like, even though you guys are in high school, let's be honest, we all know cigarettes exist in high school and weed and alcohol and things like that exist. And sometimes your positive mental health is staying away from them because they can be really detrimental to you in the long run. And actually caught as much as we like to think that legal or illegal drugs and alcohol can help our mental health, they actually can cause depression in the long run. So even avoiding those kinds of things is good for your mental health or embracing affirmations. Affirmations can go so far, go on YouTube, listen to an I am great video, listen to a gratitude video. It's the You'll never know until 10 years down the road how powerful taking five minutes a day is to be grateful for yourself or to say, I am awesome. I am strong. I am smart. How that rewires your brain. It's not an immediate band-aid effect like social media makes it seem, but in the long run, it can go just as far as seeing a counselor on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I also want to mention is nurture your relationships because relationships are very, very, very important to your mental health. So being able to have someone that you can talk to, being able to have people that you know that care about you and love you in the times where maybe you doubt those things about yourself. Yeah. Or make a relationship with uh, Simone's Instagram if you really want to stay on Instagram and TikTok. You should tell them the full name because I feel... No, okay. I love it. I'll, I'm like, I feel so good today. <laughs> so it's because it's the cognitive corner right? Or yeah. is it Cognitive Corner yeah. or The Cognitive Corner? The Cognitive Corner. Yeah. Yeah. Instagram and TikTok. Don't follow my TikTok. It's <laughs> I'm learning how to repurpose shoes. So I just <laughs> like, like, and, but that's like, hang on. So take out the fact about don't follow my TikTok, but um, crafting, like I like cosplay. I am a huge nerd and that is good for my mental health. The act of crafting and that mindful activity. And currently it's repurposing shoes just makes me feel good don't ask (laughs) thank you so much um our final question for you both is how can youth in alberta connect with you yeah um so if you are a youth in alberta and looking for therapy specifically um i have a practice called the cognitive corner um and you can reach me at the cognitive corner www.thecognitivecorner.ca um or Instagram, TikTok, the cognitive corner is the handle for both of those. Um, and email Simone at the cognitive corner.ca. Make it easy. Perfect. She's also a member of the Alberta Black Therapist Network. Yeah. So if you want to like read her bio that way, or even find another to go back to resources, if you're looking for a black specific counselor, um, if you go Alberta Black Therapist Network.com, um, .ca, you can uh, find somebody that way. For myself, uh, my name is Odian Welch on um, Instagram, O-D-I-O-N-W-E-L-C-H. Or you can find me mainly at the Africa Center. Uh, and if you just look up the Africa Center, all of our contact information is there. And we, I don't know if this will play before then, but for Black Mental Health Week, we have a conference coming up and Simone is one of the speakers. So you could watch us both in action if you attend. Um, what date is the Black Mental Health Week? Um, Black Mental Health Day is on Monday, March 7th, and so it's that whole week. And actually, exciting news, it's been my little baby project, the city of Edmonton is going to light up the bridge in green for preventative mental health for Black Mental Health Day. That's amazing. 
Yeah, it was one of my little fun projects. Um, Okay, guys, I want to thank you both so much for your time. This was a great conversation, and I hope to connect again in the future. And to all the listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of the Black History Month special, and I hope you tune in again.